0: Well, Christianity, I don't know all your church backgrounds, but Christianity is highly relational, very personal, partly because that's how God is, right? God's Father, Son, Spirit. So he's always been in community with himself. So God creates us and he creates us in his image. What does that mean? Well, you and I, we were made for community. And then you get to the New Testament. You can type to turn to Galatians. We're in the book of Galatians. If you're new, it's a really small book, 149 verses. But here's what's interesting about the New Testament. And And I love to show you, I love to talk about, I love to realize for myself what's unique about Christianity. One of the things that's unique about Christianity is... Is the documents that we have, the, the New Testament, it's different than any other religious book, and, and well, in almost every way, but here's one of the ways. Most of the New Testament, 27, 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament, are letters. Some of you go, What's a letter? It's like an email. Um, before email, you used to have to take, as we rode our dinosaur to, to school, we used to have to, to, to write with pen and with ink, and you'd, you'd write a letter. And what you're going to see with Paul is, Paul is, and we're to see this today, Paul in his letters, and that's what we love about Paul. Paul is very open, he's very transparent, he's very vulnerable, he's very emotional. He's unlike most men, right? Most men are known for their silence. Everyone's like, what does dad do? Nobody knows. You know, what was dad's childhood like? Who knows? Does dad struggle with anything? Probably, but he wouldn't tell us if he does, right? It's like dad's quiet. Men are known for their silence. Men are known for not being emotional at all, unless the football game's on. That's about it. And so what's interesting is the apostle Paul opens up and he shares his life. And this is super important. Why is it important? Well, because, you know, yes, all people are created equal, but, but there are people in human history that are uniquely used by God. And the Apostle Paul's life is super important. I mean, there are three reasons people believe in Christianity from a rationalistic standpoint. Number one is fulfilled prophecy. You go, well, God said it 800 years before it would happen. He said virgin birth. He said born in Bethlehem. Uh, You know, you you can't choose those things. You can't determine your birth uh, beforehand. So God said something. It was done. Fulfilled prophecy. Then other people are like, well, great. The resurrection of Christ. The historical reliability of the resurrection of Christ. We talk about that often, and especially at Easter. That's the second reason people go, wow, this makes sense. Third reason is the life of Paul. And I just want to talk about this for a minute because then we're going to look at his life. I want you to understand that even, I, don't, we're, I know we're all kind of in different places spiritually in this room, but um, even the most theologically liberal scholars have to admit this. There was a guy named Paul who two years after Jesus died said he saw him risen from the dead and that this man named Paul, his whole life was transformed and changed. Because think about it, it's like, well, Paul was rich for his society. He had a great job. He had lots of influence. He had lots of friends. He had lots of status. He didn't need anything else. And he certainly, it's like, what, it's like, what was Paul's motives to change everything and to walk on an average 20 miles a day and to suffer again and again and again and to be misunderstood and to basically, in everyone's mind, change religions and change jobs and travel all the time and be single by choice? And so we just, I'm just saying, this is why it's so important. We have to wrestle with this. And so what Paul's going to do today, and we'll kind of see this in the weeks to come, is Paul's going to share his testimony. Now, testimony is different than a biography. Like you and I, we love biographies, right? We love movies that are made into biographies. We love, every time you go on New York Times bestseller list, guess what's on there? A biography. What's a biography? A biography is a story about somebody, and how great they are, usually. That's why you read biography. Like, well, you know, Winston Churchill, what, what made him so great? And then you read about it, you go, oh, that's why he was so great. He was normal in some ways, but oh, that's why he's so great. A, that, a biography is about how great a man is. Uh, a testimony is about how great God is through somebody. Uh, a testimony is very, very different. Let me give you an example. So Louis Zambernini, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he was, he's the movie, he's the main character that the, the movie uh, Unbroken is about. It was first a book and then it was a, a, a you know, worldwide movie. And what's interesting about that movie is, in that movie, it says, "Well, hey, isn't Louis great? Louis, kind of look at the, the spirit of Louis. He would, no matter what came at him, he was strong, and he didn't break. That's why they called the movie Unbroken." Well, do you know what happened to Louis when he got back? He became an alcoholic because he couldn't deal with just all that happened. I mean, who could, right? You're in a Japanese prison camp for years. I mean, you get to see the movie to see all that happens. But but he becomes an alcoholic, and then he begins to plan how he's going to go back to Japan and kill. His guard, but he becomes alcoholic, and his wife says, "Come on, you're an alcoholic, and you know, and your your whole life's going down the tubes. And come to this Billy Graham crusade with me." So Louis, and he's very proud of this. Louis, Louis gives his life to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, and God changes Louis's life. And Louis spends the rest of his life figuring out how he can go and meet with that Japanese guard, so that he can forgive him and tell him how Christ has forgiven him. That's a testimony. So many times in our society, we talk about biography, we don't have any category for testimony. It's, it's biography, you're the main character, testimony, God's main character. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul. If you open up to Galatians chapter 1, we're going to look at the rest of Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24 this evening. And I want you to start with me in verse 11. It says this For I would have you know. That's Paul's way to go, please be quiet, please listen, I'm dead serious. That's, Paul will say that oftentimes if he's trying to get really serious about something or very specific, here's what he says, brothers. And he talks to the church as a family, right? And if you understand that the church is a family, it solves almost all of your problems on how you relate in the church. Uh, well, yeah, we're different, but we need to, you know, be united. Yep. Just like a family. Well, we hurt each other. We need to forgive each other. Yep. Just like a family. Well, we love each other, but we don't always like each other. Yep. Just like a family. Exactly like a family. So as soon as you realize the church is a family, it's like, it makes all, it all makes sense. And then Paul says this, that the gospel, and that's the good news of Jesus, it's the unique message that's unlike anything else, that the hero dies for the villains. That's the main message of Christianity. That God is great. We are sinful. God moves toward us. We can't move toward him. Christ dies for sinners. All you have to do is give him yourself and your sin and admit that you are completely unable to save yourself and you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. He says, here's what I want you to know, that the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. And then look at verse 12. He says this, listen guys, he says, for I did not receive it from any man, not tradition, not education, no professor told me. I didn't read about it online. I, I didn't even reason and reflect about it. I didn't have a bunch of like emotions and feelings that made me think this could be true. And then he says this, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing he's saying. The gospel is not speculation, but revelation. Uh, You need to understand that speculation is what most people believe. It's man's thoughts about God. And, And let me tell you this. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this last week, and I can't remember the title of it right now. But the article was about how, you know, there's this rise in astrology and there's this interest in horoscopes and... Well, I don't understand horoscopes that well, and I don't think many of you do either, but we'll just talk about it for a second. But basically, there's horoscopes, there's astrology. It has to do with the Earth's rotation and the sun and the stars. Well, anyway, as the Earth rotates, I guess also over thousands of years, it wobbles. And why am I telling you this? Because what they found out is all the horoscopes are wrong. (laughs) They're all off by a month. Isn't that interesting? So people who are serious about their horoscope, they've been looking at the wrong horoscope their whole life. That's, a, that's kind of a silly, but just this happened last week, where it's like, well, that was speculation. That was man's thoughts about spiritual life or about how to know yourself or about how to know God or about spiritual truth. Speculation, right? Respect, religion is in the category of speculation. Religion is man's thoughts about God. So this is really interesting because John Stott, who, write that name down, great godly man um, of the 20th century. He's dead now, but he wrote a lot of great books. He was an incredible thinker. He was actually remained single his whole life. He was a pastor, remained single his whole life. Anyway, wrote all these great books. He would travel and speak, and he said he'd go to universities. He'd speak in front of lots of students a lot of times. He said, I went on a university campus. And he said, when I used to go on a university campus, I used to go, and there was always theology departments. Like, you'd go, and there'd be like a theology department, and that's where you'd learn about God. He said, in about the 50s or 60s, there was no longer theology departments. He said, they all got replaced with religion departments. And they moved the theology department. It used to be its own thing. They moved religion. They moved that department under anthropology. So think about that for a second. And they're right. What they're saying is, what religion is, is man's thoughts about God. So to study religion is actually to study man. And that's a profound insight, and that's actually right. In other words, you study religion, that's exactly what they think about God. In all, that's why every religion is basically the same. It's like some version of, okay, well, there's seven of this in Hinduism, and there's you know, five of this in Islam. and it's, it's all kind of like, it's all a similar system of, I will do a few good things, and then God will reward me. That, that's kind of the, the message. Now, now, revelation is what the Bible is. See, he says that, that I received it through revelation. Revelation is God forfeiting his personal privacy and letting us know who he is. That's, revelation is you would not know this if God did not tell you it. That's why, that's why we are so dependent on what's called special or divine revelation. It's God unveiling, or you could say, pulling back the veil and telling us exactly who he is. And, and this is important because if you're gonna get to know somebody, and this is you know this to be true, anytime you get to know somebody, you're more dependent on that person opening up and telling you who they are. Otherwise, you'll never know them. Like every guy has tried to get to know some girl at some point in his life, and she's like, nope, you're not going to know me. <laughs> I'm going to answer your questions with one word. I'm, you know, right? I mean, or, or guys, here's another example. Guys are the worst at getting to know each other. Like it's not uncommon for two guys to play golf for five hours together, and then they go home and their wives go, how's Johnny doing? And is his wife Susie doing good? I have no idea well, didn't you just play golf with him for four hours? Yep. Did you talk at all about the recent surgery he had? Nope. You know, I mean, it's just like, we don't even think about it. It's like, yeah, well, we talked about sports and we talked about politics, you know, and we talked about the Netflix series we saw, but we didn't actually open up, right? Because that's kind of vulnerable and that's kind of dangerous and that's kind of uncomfortable. And what God does is he opens up and he tells us things about himself that we would not know if he did not tell us. So that's the first thing we see, is the gospel is not speculation, man's thoughts about God. It's revelation, God's thoughts about man. Here's the second thing. The gospel makes you new, not nice. This is gonna, I'm going to show you this in just a second, verse 13. But Paul's going to talk about his former life. And Paul's going to say, listen, Christianity is not... And religion is not what most people think it is. Most people think Christianity is about making you nice. Like you will be a better citizen and a nicer version of yourself, a better version of the same person, um, a kinder, sweeter, gentler, more domesticated version of yourself if you were religious. That that's the idea that religion makes you nice. Well, actually, what religion is makes you new. Like, I mean, think about some of the things that Christianity says. You'd be born again. That sounds like new to me. You are gonna go from death to life. That sounds like new. Uh, you're going to go from darkness to light. Sounds like new. You're going to go from being blind to seeing. Sounds like new. It's a completely changed and transformed life. And I want you to see this. Look at me at verse 13. Here's what Paul says. You have heard, for you have heard and everybody heard, right? Paul is like the crazy guy that gets converted in college, right? I've seen this before. It's like it was a, he, his life is radically different and everybody has heard about it. Not everybody understands it, but everybody's heard about it. And he says this, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism. So Paul basically says, listen, I had this former life, and it was, I was a very religious person. And, and by the way, God saves some people out of religion and other people out of rebellion. There's two ways to run from God, right? You can run from God by being very, very religious, by being a very good person. I'll stay in church, but I'll be far from God. Right? I mean, I, there was a guy not that long ago, a couple months ago. One of the, one of the girls on our staff said, hey, so-and-so called. This, this person's in their 70s and said, hey, you know, he wants you to call him back. It seemed fairly urgent. I thought, well, okay, this is interesting. So I called him up and I knew who he was and we'd had some several conversations. And I said, hey, everything okay? He said, yeah, I wanted to call you. Um, and I've never had anyone tell me this before. He said, I think I'm religiously lost. And he said, I, you know, you're talking about being in church and not in Christ. And you talk about like affections changing and desires changing and a new heart and loving the right things and hating the wrong things, and I don't have that in me. I think I've been playing church for 60 years. And so we began a process of walking with this guy. And I'm encouraged to tell you, he gave his life to Christ in his 70s, he's been baptized here, his whole life has been changed. He looks different to me. He looks like a different person. He hugs me every time I see him. And his whole life's been changed, but he was religiously lost. And there's different types of religious laws. Like, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's all forms of moralism. Like, there was a guy. His name's Curly. And he was on my hall my freshman year of college. And I loved Curly. Curly was this great guy. He was like an atheist or an agnostic or something. But I remember he showed up to school and he told all of us. And I never heard of this before. Maybe you never heard of this. He showed up. He said, I'm straight edge. Said, what does straight edge mean? Well, you can Google it later. But straight edge is a punk rock moralism. It, yeah, there you go. They put, they put, they put X's on their hands. Because it's like, I always want to be under, I always want to not be drinking. And they, it, it's, it's, a, I don't drink, smoke, too, hang with those who do. I mean, that's kind of, the, but, it, but it's a non-Christian punk version of it. And you know, so it was interesting. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. There's moralism in different cultures. And I've told you before, right? There's the moralism of I reduce, recycle, and ride my bike and shop at Whole Foods. And I, because of that, God loves me and other people love me and I'm saving the environment. And so there's, there's different, but then there's different types of rebellion. Now we love rebellion stories where people are saved out of rebellion, right? We're like, Justin Bieber's a Christian. And I think he is. And Kanye West is a Christian. Oh man. Or, hey guys, have you heard of Rosaria Butterfield? If you've not, I mean, I'm being serious. She's great. You should read her. She wrote a book, this, the, unli- the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, something like that. And, and she tells this incredible story. She was a 10-year professor living an alternative lifestyle at the University of Syracuse and comes to faith in Christ through the hospitality of a couple that knew Christ and comes completely out of rebellion against God. And we need to hear both of those stories, right? Because they're, they're both glorious stories. God saving people out of a rebellious lifestyle. God saving people out of a religious lifestyle. And see, what we need to t- show, and we need to particularly show the next generation this, that Christianity is not, it is not about rules and religion, But rebellion also doesn't work. What we need is a relationship with God. That's the the third way. Because what happens in a home where a kid's got a lot of rules? Some of you grew up in homes like that. Tons of rules, lots of religion. What do you do as soon as you get to college? Or high school if your parents don't know about it. You rebel. Because you're never taught that there's actually a third way. There's a third way of having a relationship with God through Christ in which the law is life-giving. And we'll get to that later in, in the book of Galatians. So anyway, so Paul says, the gospel makes you new, not nice. Here's the next thing he says, verse 14. He says, and and he wants you to know about, this is amazing, here's his whole life in one sentence before Christ. And it'd be a good thing if you could share your whole life in one sentence before Christ. Here's what he says, and I was advancing in Judaism. In other words, I was very, very successful. Do successful people need Christ? They do. Do people who make a lot of money need Christ? They do. Do they feel like they need Christ? Not usually. Because when all of your felt needs are met, you feel like you don't have any forever needs. But when there's some type of suffering in your life, it makes you. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, right? God whispers in our pleasure, speaks to us every day, uses a megaphone in our pain. But Paul's like, hey, listen, Christianity's not just for poor people and and down-and-out people. It's certainly for them, but it's for every person. He says, look, I was I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was a Rhodes scholar. I was extremely zealous. Being passionate is not enough. Millennials think I'm passionate. I'm excited. I must be heading in the right direction because I'm running fast. And you can be passionate about the wrong things. He says, I was extremely zealous, but it was zeal without knowledge. And then he says this, and I was in, I, extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I was doing what every generation before me had done. See, this is the power of the gospel is that it actually even breaks generational sin in your life. You know, and there are generational sins. i told you this before, but alcohol, alcoholism, abuse, and adultery tend to be generational. But when you come to faith in Christ, you can be the first link in a brand new chain of fallen Christ. And so he shares this. He says, this is what God's done with me. And then look at verse 15. He says, but when he who set me apart, now Paul's gonna share another big idea. The gospel converts us and gives us a calling. The gospel converts us. We believe in conversion here, not coercion. Coercion is I will force you to have faith and I can't do that. I will beat you and make you believe. We can't do that because belief is an internal thing that God must do in us. But we believe in conversion. We believe God transforms and changes people's lives. That he breaks addictions. That he restores families. That he brings people from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. That's the power of conversion. Now, we, we think that Paul was converted. They, they estimate that Paul was converted between the ages of 28 and 31, which is interesting because that's probably the average age of this room right now. That Paul was a young, passionate, educated man and was converted. And that's what we want to see happen in our city. We want to see young, passionate, educated men and women converted. We want to be a conversion community, a place where people can have a second chance, where they can experience the grace of God, where they can be forgiven, where they can have hope. And so Paul says, listen, Christ converted me. I want you to hear the story. He tells it this way. He says this, but he's going to say this in verse 15. God did something in eternity and God did something in history. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Now there's a mystery to that. God does something in eternity. Right? And we get scared to talk about these kind of things because we don't, there is a mystery to it, right? How does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together? I don't always know. I don't know. But what, he, what Paul's saying here is that God did something before I was born. That's part of what grace is. I had nothing to do with it. It's something like this God picked you, and then in response, you picked him. God drew you, and then in response, you decided to follow him. But God is the decisive factor in the one who initiates it. That's what grace means. And it's not something that should scare you. If you say something like, God picked you, it should humble you and comfort you. And here's why that is, because some of you have never been picked for anything. You're like, I wasn't picked to to the dodgeball team. Um, I wasn't picked for the college I wanted to go to. Um, The the guy I liked or the girl I liked didn't like me back. Well, that didn't work out. There's been a lot of things that, like you have to understand that Christianity was started by a bunch of people who were never picked for anything. And the power of the Christian message is God loves the unlovable, God wants the unwantable that's the power of it. So he says God did something in history. But then he says God does something in or sorry, God does something in eternity, then secondly he says God does something in history. And look at this. He says this. So verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, that's the eternity. And he and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now that happened in history. So how does God reveal himself to people today? Well, we know the answer to that, and we're not going to put God in the box because God could do anything, but there are three things God uses to reveal himself. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the church, the people of God. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God. I mean, think about it. You know, we, are, we should be humble and hopeful because God's Spirit can change any person's heart. And we don't really believe that oftentimes, but we really, really. I mean, God, God's Spirit can change the heart of Paul. God's Spirit can change the heart of your father-in-law. Or the heart of your rebellious son, or brother, or sister, or mother, or whoever it is. So the first thing is the spirit. The second is the word of God. Like you know, one of the things you want to do if you're if you're trying to reach out to somebody, you want to get as many you want to get the word of God to them in as many different forms as possible. It's like, well, here's a Bible. Thanks for that. Uh, and here's an audible. Uh, listen to this book about the Bible. And I remember I, I was at UNCG doing ministry before I went over to Duke to do ministry. And when I was at UNCG, there was a lot of students there who liked rap. And so I gave them, and this does exist, Christian rap. Okay? Um, some of you are like, I didn't know that existed. It does. Um, Christian, and it was really good. It was like Lecrae, and it was all these guys, and I would give them these, these um, well, I just, it was all online, so I'd just say, hey, go look this up, and they would, they would look it up, and, and, uh, and what I loved about it is it was the word of God in substance and style and song that they could understand, and there would be all these truths that they would begin to listen to from that, that worldview and that perspective. You want to get the word of God in front of people. I, I was talking to a guy this week. He said, he was telling me a story. He said, listen, I, he said, I went to Dartmouth. I played soccer at Dartmouth. He said, um, and I took a religious studies class, and while I'm taking this religious studies class, he said, uh, I, I had to take it. It was like one of the electives, so I took it. I'm sitting in the class. My professor is completely mocking the Bible as well as every other religious text. It was just like one of those, I'm smarter than God, and here's every, every book, and it's all wrong. And, uh, and he said, but he would assign readings. He said one night he assigned the Gospel of John, and I read it, and I became a believer that night. It was such a powerful story. He said it was a reminder that the, the, the word of God is unchained, as Paul would say, that it is living and active, and though even though it was mocked in my class when I read it in my home, it changed my heart. And so that's the power of the word. And then the third thing is the church, right? It's like the community of believers. And, and if you listen to any testimony, just, I mean, look, at, listen for these next time. If you listen to anybody's story about how they became a Christian, and they can tell it to you for like 20 or 30 minutes, if you listen carefully, you're going to hear all three things. You're going to hear something like, well, this was what was going on in my life, and God was speaking to me through it. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Then you'll hear something like, well, you know, I never really understood the Bible until. And they'll say something like, I don't know, I went to this church or heard this guy or listened to this podcast or someone gave me purpose-driven life. I mean, who knows what it's going to be? And then they're normally going to say something. And it won't always be in this order. It might be reversed. But then they'll say something like, well, and then I met Debbie or Joey or Sally, whatever. And, and, I, never, and I actually never saw somebody live the Christian life out before. And they forgave me and they had a good marriage and I never saw. What a good, and I, they forgave me when I sinned against them and I never experienced forgiveness. And, and that's how someone comes to faith in Christ. It's the Spirit of God, it's the Word of God, it's the people of God. It's like, what are we, do, what are we doing on Sundays? That, well, those three things. I mean, the prayer every Sunday is, well, Lord, would your Spirit move as we commit to the Word and we gather as people? And in fact, Paul says that the hope would be that, that non-Christians would come and people who are far from God, close to us, they'd come visit, they'd go, uh, God's here. That's 1 Corinthians 14, that they would show up and they go, there's something unique here. The people of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, is changing me, it's transforming me. I don't even know how to fully articulate it, but God's doing something. So that's conversion, but then there's calling, right? Conversion happens in a moment. Calling is a lifetime, right? And there's a difference between like your job and a calling. Your job can be a calling, but you know, most people have a job and, and a job is, you know, something you would do, you would not do if you did not get paid to do it. That's just like the definition of a job, you know? And, but what's happened, what we're, what we've lost in our society is a sense of calling. Now, calling is very, very powerful. Calling is, it, it's from the old word. I, I like to use some of the old language they used to use, vocation vocation is calling. Now, calling is for a lifetime. And and here's the truth. Most of you don't need to do something different. You need to do uh, differently what you already do. Let me try to say that differently. Basically, here's the idea. um, You don't need to do something different. You need to do what you're doing differently. So, like, take this. So, not all of us, but some of us in here are married. And so, guess what? Being a husband or a wife, imagine what would it look like if everybody in this room saw that as a calling? There would be a new sense of passion there would be a new sense of meaning. It's like, I woke up, it's like, this is what God's called me to, and I know it. And it's actually easy because, right, there are subjective callings in your life, but they're hard to tell. Like, you might say, like, oh, look, should I take this job? I feel called by God to take this job. It's like, well, maybe you do, or maybe you just want warmer weather and more salary. And who knows, right? I mean, who knows if God God could be calling you to it, but your heart's deceitful, and, you know, good luck, and we'll pray with you, and we'll try to work it out. But who knows? But then there are objective callings. It's like, well, I'm married and I've got Bible verses about how I'm supposed to be a husband. That's pretty objective. Or I'm in a church and I know what I'm called to do. I'm called to love and forgive and bear burdens and it's pretty objective. I can't get around it. Or I'm a father or I'm a mother, whatever you are, and I know I've got a calling. What would it look like if everybody in this church, especially in a society where people don't have any meaning anymore, right? It's like life's as good as it could ever be materially right now in America, and people are as stressed and depressed and anxious as ever. And part of it is this massive gap of I have no meaning in my life. I get up, I go to work, I make a lot of money, or I make a little money, whatever I do, and I go home and I just drink a microbrew beer and I, and I watch a new Netflix show. And that's my life. <laughs> and that is so many people's lives. And there's no sense of meaning. There's no sense of calling. There's no sense of urgency. And Paul says that we can be called to things. And that, Paul says that's, that's his whole life. Which leads to the next thing that, he ha- that happens with Paul, and we see this in verse 16. He says this, halfway through 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Part of what Paul's doing, to understand this, is Paul is trying to say how he has the same gospel as the other apostles, but he did not learn it from them. That's part of what he's trying to say in Galatians. I didn't go and learn it from Peter, or learn it from James, or learn it from John. We have the same gospel, but I got it directly from, by revelation from Christ. So here's what he says. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But, and this is interesting, this is the only place that this shows up in the Bible. And this is why you need the whole Bible, right? It takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. And so this, is, this, is, this doesn't show up anywhere else. We don't learn this in Acts. We don't learn this anywhere else in Paul's letters. But again, Paul is vulnerable. He's opened up his life. He's talking about the first few years he was a Christian. And here's what he says. But I went away into Arabia and then I returned again to Damascus. Okay, okay, Paul, how long were you there? Verse 18. Then after three years. It's like, Paul, what are you doing? Here's the, here's the big idea the gospel needs to work in us and then through us. The gospel needs to work in us. The deeper the gospel goes in you, the wider it can go through you. And so it's interesting, and we don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of tell you what people think. What the best scholars and thinkers and commentators think Paul was doing, because we don't know for sure. Here's what we know for sure Paul becomes a Christian at 28 to 31 years old. The the Damascus Road experience, which we'll talk about more next week, happens two years after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul's about 30 years old, he's radically converted. And he's about to lose his job, lose his friends, lose all of his relationships, lose all of his money, suffer greatly, be called to a whole new mission. And he just needs to get away before he can go into all that. And he goes away to Arabia and Damascus for about three years. Most people don't think he did much ministry at all there. Most people think that what he did was he built a foundation for his faith. In fact, it's interesting, he went for three years. How long were the disciples with Christ? For three years. So most people think, did he like, you know, we don't know for sure, but did, did he have to just take some time? Here's the three things that we think happen. Number one, he had to deal with his past, right? And this is what you'll have to do if you come, if you, when you come to Christ, if you come to Christ, if you've not dealt with this, you'll have to do this, right? And, and you won't be able, we don't have the, most of us don't have the discretionary time and the discretionary income to go to Arabia for three years. You're like, okay, well, what about Saturday morning for three hours? Okay. hmm <laughs> That might work, okay? You're like, what about Starbucks for three hours with a cup of coffee? Okay, maybe. Um, the, the whole idea is to get away, get away from your normal life, and to think about a couple of things. Here's what Paul had to deal with he had to deal with his past. And I've seen this. I've seen guys come to faith in Christ. I'm picking on guys for a second because I know their stories a little better. I've seen guys come to faith in Christ and they go, there's a couple of girls I need to call and apologize to. There's a couple of things in my past that I need to get right. And, and, I've seen, and I've seen this before because, well, think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul killed people. The Apostle Paul was a religious lost zealot, so he had to deal with his, all of his issues and all of you know all of his past. The second thing he had to do is he had to build a, found, a, a theological foundation for his life. It's like this is interesting. So we'll get into this eventually. I'll preach the Romans, and that'll be fun. That'll take probably a year. Um, but that, that's that's Paul's explanation of the entire Christian faith in 16 chapters. Galatians is is kind of the the reader digest version of. of uh, of Romans. Anyway, uh, what what Paul's going to do in in Galatians is he's going to bring up these big ideas that I think he was thinking about meditating and wrestling on in Arabia. He's going to talk a lot about like, well, how Jewish do you need to be to follow Jesus? We'll get into that in chapter two, but that's a big question in the book of Galatians. Like how Jewish do you need to be? Do you need to be Jewish at all? Well, how much of the gospel is cultural? How much of it's not? I mean, he's got to deal with things like what's the role of the law? That may not seem important to us, but like Paul memorized the first five books of the Bible, and he's he's like everything was about the Ten Commandments. So, how does Christ fulfill the Ten Commandments? He had to deal with a lot of that. Uh, What what does it mean that Christ died on the cross for sinners? And he has to think about what is the resurrection. So he has to do that. And then the third thing he has to do is he has to think about his future. Right? It's like well his life's different now, you know. And I've seen guys, particularly I've seen more of this with guys because that's who I discipled. But I've seen guys come to faith in Christ, and they have to do those three things: clean up your past, figure it out, read some basic theology books so you you have some understanding of the Bible. And then you're going to need to realize that you're now going to have a completely different life than you thought you were. Right? You come to Christ and no one realizes how much that's going to affect them. It's like, come to Christ, here's what's going to change. Who you marry will change if you're single. How you view money, how you view sex, how you view time, how you view everything. It's, and, and for the rest of your life, that, that's the whole image in the Bible of the, the tree that grows in you. And it's like, it's bigger and bigger. It was a seed and then it becomes a tree. And so Paul says, I go into Arabia and I do this for three years and I get away. Here's another idea with this is that we need to be Christians not just when we're in community, we need to be Christians when we're by ourselves, right? And I know I often talk the opposite, right? I'll say things like, well, you know, Christianity's not a spectator sport, and it's not a solo sport, and you better get in a group, and you better be in community, and that's true. The other side of that is, you don't want to only be a Christian when you're in community, which happens to people. And they don't even realize, I'm maybe not even really a Christian, because like, I, I was a part of this great youth group, and I had a great band, and I got emotional every Sunday, and all my friends were Christians, and I went to camp, and I gave and I prayed a prayer, and um, and I love when those certain songs come on, and I love to sing with everybody. But I'm not really a Christian by myself. And, and honestly, the real, the, there's two real signs that you're a Christian. Like that you'll know that, you know, that you know 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 personally. One is you're suffering and you're still trusting God through it. And the second is not just that you're suffering, trusting God. The second is you're doing things that are very Christian by yourself when no one else knows it, and that you never tell anybody about. It's like you just prayed for 30 minutes for your lost friends and you didn't tell anybody about it, and you just, you've been quietly repenting of your fantasy life because you struggle before you go to bed not to think some thoughts you shouldn't think, and you're working on it. You're not telling anybody. You're just working on it. It's not to impress anybody. You're up early, and you're reading the Bible and praying, but not because you're going to tell somebody, but because you actually genuinely enjoy, it and it's changing who you are, and you feel like you're actually meeting with the Lord. Those are the times you can go, I think I'm really a Christian. So Paul is a Christian, and, and we learn another principle, which is the, the Bible is, is for solitude and against isolation. And those are different, right? There's a tension there. Um, so I, isolation is, I, I want to get away so I can do sinful things and not tell anybody. I can be selfish and sinful and nobody will know. Like I was talking to a guy this week, and he was telling me, he's a business leader, and he was, he was telling me he has, he, he has several very successful friends in the business world who are Christians, all who have fallen, not pastors. But they've just—they've ruined and wrecked their marriages, um, three or four or five guys. And I'm sitting across the table having lunch with him, and he looks at me and he says, "It's always three things." He says, "It's wealth, global travel, and isolation." He said, "Every guy I've seen who's fallen—it's been those three things. They're very wealthy, so they can kind of do what they want. And then they—they they travel internationally, so you know, all, all of a sudden they're in Europe or they're in Asia or they're just there on a business trip for three days, and—and they're—but the, that's okay." have money and it travels, but they're isolated. And so they don't, they're all by themselves and nobody knows who they are there and nobody knows that they're Christian and nobody's asking them questions and they end up giving in. Solitude is something different. Solitude is I want to be alone in a way so I can be with the Lord, so I can come back and be with people. I actually want to, you know, I want to be with the Lord and I want him to fill, spiritually speaking, kind of metaphorically speaking, I want him to fill my tank so that I can go and I can overflow to other people. And that's what happens with Paul because we'll see what happens Next, where Paul goes. If you look at me at the next verse, here's what it says. Verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James. So again, Paul's going on. He's like, look, I've not hung out with a lot of the apostles. The Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now this is interesting. I learned something new this week I didn't know. There's a town in Cilicia. The main town in Cilicia is Tarsus. Where's the Apostle Paul from? Where was he born and raised? Tarsus. So this is so, so the Bible is so practical. What do you do after you've become a Christian, you've grown spiritually, God's done something in your life, you go back home and you share with others. You go back and you share first and foremost with those who you are closest to right? I mean, this is, the Bible t- talks about that, right? Jesus says, Judeus, Mary, the ends of the earth. It's, it's local, national, global. It's, it's, the, what's, it's what's called the doctrine of moral proximity. You are most responsible for the people you are closest to locationally and relationally. And how do you think through that? Well, I was given an acronym recently uh, that I'll share with you guys. It's called FRANC with the a C, F-R-A-N-C, for how to think through your concentric circle. Uh, the F stands for friends and family. It's like, who are you first responsible for? Well, your, your closest friends, your closest family. It might be your kids that are in the house with you still. Uh, it, might, it might be your spouse that's not a Christian or whatever. It, you know, it might, it might be your very close friends that you see all the time. Okay, friends and family. Second is relatives. It's like, who, who else could you pray? Well, how about your mom and dad that you see at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, and they occasionally come in town to help watch the kids or something? Okay, great. We'll pray for them, because you're going to see them. You've got a lot of relationship. You've got a lot of investment with them. You could share them. After that, acquaintances. <clears throat> acquaintances are like... Uh, the guy, you know, and how do you build acquaintances? You build acquaintances by being a local and a regular. It's so like you're like I don't know many Christians, and that happens to people, especially the longer they've been in church. And you know, I don't know, they homeschool and their their kids are in private school somewhere with Christians, and and all, you know, they, they they're busy and they're overwhelmed, so they only have time for community group and the a group and here. And all of a sudden they they go, I don't have any Christian friends, or non-Christian friends. Well, part of what you do is you're, you're a local. It's like well, you go to the same gym at the same time, and the same person checks you in. You build a relationship. You go to the same coffee shop. You meet the same barista, and you talk to them. You, you, you are a regular, you are a local, and you are intentional in those relationships. So that's, that's the A. N is neighbors. And it's, it's funny because you're like, well, neighbors, why is that so low on the list? It's like, well, part of the reason is we don't even know our neighbors, right? Most of us, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Like, well, first I'd have to know them, you know? And, 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 then, and then we, we look, and the only way that you know who your neighbor is, or, or even like anything about them, is the decal on the back of their car. You're like, they have two kids. Uh, two dogs I think that's a cat you know they like Star Wars I could tell by that on the, on the decal on the back of the car it's like that, that's all we right because what happens and this is the way our houses are and it's interesting to read about this like how the way neighborhoods are, are changed now right it used to be front porch no air conditioning until like the 70s it's like so front porch no air conditioning everybody in sidewalks and smaller houses that were close together and what is it now air conditioning pull into your garage hit the button before you get out of the car so it closes behind you get into your backyard with your privacy fence with your Wi-Fi With your air-conditioned home, it's like well, nothing wrong. I'm saying we live, we are so isolated from our own neighbors, and then the C is your coworkers or your classmates, kind of those 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 final category. And and this this I'm actually right now in a in a cohort. This is really want you guys to know this. I'm in a cohort with pastors uh, from across the nation. It's a neat cohort, and uh, and we meet monthly over uh, online. And the purpose of this cohort is to help each other be more evangelistically faithful and fruitful pastors personally so that we can hopefully lead more evangelistically faithful and fruitful churches. And one of the things they said is they said, when, when you think about the, those people on your Frank list, and you might wanna make a Frank list, you're like, oh, well, here's one friend, and here's one relative, and here's one acquaintance. So maybe just have one of each. You don't overwhelm yourself. Just hear, uh, he says, well, then then create a BLESS list. And a BLESS list, That's sorry, get ready for another acronym. Um, but maybe you'll remember these things. I, I found it helpful. And the BLESS list is what do you do when you think about those people? So I don't know, you got your neighbor, you got your mom's coming into town, and you're like, well, mom's not a Christian, and. I never know what to do when mom comes in town, because I'm trying to, or maybe it's my mother-in-law, whatever. Uh, Maybe it's my friend from college who's visiting for a wedding. I don't know what to do because I've I become a Christian. I don't know how to talk about it. I've become become more serious for Christ. I don't know how to talk about it. Well, this acronym helps. The B stands for Begin with prayer. That's just a good memory. It's like, well, just pray for them. And as soon as you pray for someone, like you, you'll be surprised. The Holy Spirit will remind you of something. You should bring this up. And God's active. The supernatural is real. You pray for conversations. Keep your eyes open. You know, you might get them. The, the second is listen. You know, I mean, if you will be the type of person who will genuinely listen to other people and actually be willing to hear a sad story, Americans don't want to hear sad stories. We say, how are you, but that basically just means I recognize you as a human being. That's all that means. That doesn't mean I'm actually interested in knowing how you are. Um, but if you will learn how to ask how people are, then you listen, then, you know, and, and if you just find out three things, what is their spiritual story? What are their pain points? What are their dreams and desires? And don't be weird about it, but just find those three things out. You'll, you'll find your ways to, you'll have tons of conversations with people. You know, you're going to find out, because what you're going to find out with everybody is everyone's got something going on. It's like, well, they're trying to take care of their aging parents, or they hate their boss, or they don't make enough money, or their kid's rebellious, or they have low-level anxiety. You just find something, you bring the gospel to bear in it. Uh, the E stands for eat with everybody, or eat, I'm mean, just eat. Uh, that's the whole idea of hospitality, invitation, inviting people in, sharing a meal. I've, I've told you this before, but in the, in the in the book of Luke, Jesus is either coming to, at, or going to a meal. Coming from, going to, or at a meal. That's the whole book of Luke, basically. Jesus is eating the Eating his way through the Book of Luke, basically, um, and it's all about eating. And in, in almost all of the spiritual stories and conversations and parables that you love, happened over a meal that Jesus told. So then there's then there's serve, like serve people, you know. And it's like, well, you, then that's hard because you look at your neighbor, you're like, well, there's a couple things I don't even like about my neighbor. Well, maybe I could help, but then I'd have to get involved, you know. Then I'd have, and that's hard. But I, I, one guy in my cohort, he's a pastor. He said, he said, he said, I know how to play, I know how to play guitar. And I found out my neighbor wants to learn how to play guitar. And so I don't really have a ton of time to teach guitar. And I probably could charge for it if I wanted to. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to teach him guitar. Once a week, he's going to come over to my house. We're going to spend an hour. I'm going to be able to serve him, teach him guitar. But really what I want to do is to build a relationship so I can share Christ with him. And the way that God has opened up for this man to come into my house every week is for me to serve him. And also sometimes it's actually letting your neighbor serve you, right? I mean, Benjamin Franklin famously said the best thing you could do when you move into your new home is to ask your neighbor for a cup of sugar on the first day. And he said the reason that is is because humans are highly reciprocal, highly. And so what you want to do is you want to start, and not in a weird way, not in an overbearing way, you want to start a reciprocal relationship with your neighbors as, as, as much as possible. And you don't want to be weird. You don't want to go over knock, 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 how can I serve you, you know? It's like that's going to scare them away. Well, you want to do something like, you know, you might want to ask them to serve you in some little way. Hey, I got to, you know, move this little piece of furniture down the hall. Could you come over and just help me for five minutes? All of a sudden, you're beginning to build a a reciprocal relationship with your neighbors. And the final thing is uh, to share your story, right? And 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 that's that's the order. Share your story or share that story. Man, if you begin, if you, it's like, man, pray for people, begin with prayer, listen to them, eat with them, serve them, and then share. And and if you think about anybody on your list that comes to your mind, those are the steps you could take. It's an incredible, incredible journey to take. So Paul does that, and then here's how it ends. Verse 22 And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So Paul's life completely changed. From persecutor to preacher. From terrorist to evangelist. From destroyer of the church to builder of the church. From someone who killed Christians to somebody who discipled Christians. That's a changed life. And then he ends with this. And they glorified God because of me. See, Paul never got over the gospel and, and the grace of God, the unmerited, unearned favor and goodness of God toward him that he couldn't help give it away to other people. And, and if you'll learn to tell other people about the grace of God and just be the grace of God for people, it, it's, it's, there's so much joy and there's so much meaning in it. I, I was listening to a dad, a wealthier guy, and he, he had said, he said, whenever my kids go somewhere and they need money, I'll say, they're going out, they're a little bit younger kids, like young teenagers. And he said, um, They'll I'll say how much money do you need? They're going to some party or something and they'll say, birthday party or whatever, they'll say, It's twenty bucks. And he said, I'll give them forty. And they'll say, Dad, what, what I mean, I only need twenty. And he says, What I always tell them is there'll be someone at that party who will need that money. There might be someone at that party whose parents can't pay for that. There might be someone at that party who forgot. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the grace of God in their life when they don't have it. I mean, how awesome is that? I get emotional talking about it. I'm just like, it's just a little thing. And he said, he said, My kids are just having so much fun. Well, partly it's fun spending other people's money, right? But, but he, said, he, he said, but they're having so much fun learning how to be generous and to give away to other people. And see, Paul never got over that, because if you read at the end of the story, there's three guys at the end of the story, James and Peter, his name's Cephas, and Pete, Paul. So you got Paul and Peter and James. And it's like, look, you've got, at the end of Galatians 1, you have the three most unlikely people you ever think would be good Christians, You've got persecutor Paul, right? It's like Paul, we'll look more at him next week, but he was, he was killing Christians, a completely religious zealot, completely against and antithetical to Christianity, comes to Christ. Amazing, the grace of God. You have Peter. Peter was not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Peter. Then Peter denies Christ three times when he needs him most. And then Jesus, in less than 40 days, restores Peter to the highest office in the church and reconciles himself to him. And then how about James? James is Jesus' younger brother. It's like, what would you have to do to have your younger brother worship you? You know, it's like, it's, in there, it's not happening, right? But, but in fact, if you read Mark chapter three, it's interesting, and I, I love how honest the Bible is. In Mark chapter three, it says that James and, and his family thought Jesus was crazy. So there was a time where James doubted that Jesus really was who he said he is. Why am I telling you this? Because if you feel like you are too rebellious like Paul, or you've done terrible things and can't be forgiven like Peter, or you've simply had so many doubts in the past like James, let me just tell you this, you might make a great Christian. (laughs) Because it seems like the first, not just Christians, the first leaders of the church, that was their past. And the power of the gospel is that there's more grace in God's heart than sin in your past. And the power of the gospel is that whatever your current, if you're not a Christian, your current life today can become your former life by the grace of God. That as you give Jesus Christ your sin, and as you give Jesus Christ yourself, he will give you his spirit, and he will give you salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now, and we just thank you for the gospel message. We thank you that what is true is that there is more grace in your heart than sin in our past. Lord, I thank you that the grace of God changes the human heart. So often we say, well, there's nature and there's nurture. Yeah, there's nature, there's nurture, and there's the grace of God. And the grace of God can forgive things that we've done. The grace of God can cleanse us from things that have been done to us. That is the power of the gospel, and we celebrate it. Lord, we want to we come together right now, and we want to celebrate it in song, Lord. Lord, and I ask that you would call us individually and as a people to faithfully preach the same grace that we have personally experienced that we would do it for your glory and for the good of our city. We ask this in your name. Amen.